Good morning. We're going to be reading from Exodus chapter 2, which can be found on page 58 of the church Bibles in front of you. If you'd like to turn to that, we'll read Exodus chapter 2 together. Page 58. Exodus chapter 2. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Let's pray, shall we? 
Father God, thank you that your word speaks to us, words written so long ago, and yet still powerful, still able to change lives. And we just pray that that will be our experience today as we look at this passage together. Amen. Um, This week, Hugh Phil made us a promise. Hugh Phil is the uh, chief economist at the Bank of England, and he promised us that we would be better off if only we stopped whinging. It's not quite how he put it, but he said we'd be better off if we put up with pay and conditions as they are, and eventually life would be better for all of us. Well, I don't know whether you believe in Hugh Phil's existence or whether you believe he exists at all, but I assume he does. But do I believe his promises? Prosperity one day, but not yet. Well, of course, a much more important question is, do we believe the promises of God? Uh, I started trying to put a few verses together to get some sense of what God's promises and thought we'll just be here all day. But uh, there we are. Here are, here are three, just for uh, examples. I'm sure you'll be familiar with some of these. Psalm 34, uh, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them, he delivers us from all our troubles. Jesus says, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then Deuteronomy, quoted in Hebrews, God says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Just a few of those wonderful promises that run through Scripture. And they're the promises of a God who loves us and longs to restore us. And we need to be reminded of those, don't we? Because so often it feels more like we're listening to the Bank of England, uh, promises that are unbelievable and ones that we probably won't take any notice of. But those promises are important when we come to read uh, Exodus uh, chapter 2 because they form the background to what is happening uh, in Exodus 2. The Israelites have been suffering for, for many years And we see verse 23, go to the end of the chapter, their cry goes up to God. And then verse 24, God hears and remembers his covenant. That's the word that's used with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs, the forefathers. We heard about those in Genesis. And then verse 25, God looks and God cares. Now I don't think, by the way, when we read that God remembers his people, I don't think we're to assume that for some reason he's forgotten about them, like David Cameron leaving his child in the pub that time or something like that. Neither I do, do I think we're supposed to understand that because of the noise the Israelites made, that God suddenly heard them. They made enough fuss for God to respond, like a sort of a two-year-old wailing in the aisle of Tesco's till mum finds them. I think this is just a very uh, graphic way of introducing that God's saving power 
is moving into action. Because it, it's quite clear, as we, as we sort of go back into the chapter, that God was already at work. God doesn't need us to shout loudly before he moves to save us. But there's also this strange word, covenant, isn't there? God remembers his covenant. A, a covenant is a sort of legal and agreement and a promise all wrapped up in one. Um, here's an obscure fact that maybe even John Puttock doesn't know, and that is that there is a covenant over the bell in the church tower. So the covenant says that we promise not to ring the bell for more than 20 minutes on a Sunday morning. So Clive, who is in charge of the bell ringing team, might want to make sure we enforce that, because that's our promise to the local neighbours. Well, of course, God's covenant is a little bit more significant than how long we ring the bell for. Uh, it's repeated several times, and those of you who were with us as we worked through Genesis uh, over the last few weeks will have heard it. Um, chapter 15 is one example. Chapter 15, God promises Abraham a future land and offspring and great reward in the future. But that particular time in chapter 15 when he makes that promise... Verses 13 to 16, he, he adds a little bit more to it. And he says to Abraham that for four generations, or 400 years, his people are going to be slaves in a foreign land. And then they will return to the land. They'll be restored to where they should be. Not only in freedom, but with great wealth. So they are going to be restored to a right relationship with God. And that is the whole point of the Bible. That's the whole message. That is the promise that we will be restored to a right relationship with our Father. And of course, it's quite possible that one day you'll think, mm, that bell's been ringing a long time in that tower. Someone's forgotten. We can only ring it for 20 minutes. But the Bible is quite insistent. God does not forget his promise. Psalm 111, lots of verses. Psalm 111 verse 5 says he remembers his covenant forever. So we have a God who wants the best for us. And he restores us and he never forgets us. But the question is, of course, that's all lovely. How does he do it? Well, to some extent, uh, Nick's already sort of highlighted that, that in right now, we are saved, we are restored through Jesus, aren't we? Jesus, who by his death and resurrection makes us right with God. But we're here, in this passage, we're in about 1570 BC. So 1570 years before Jesus, thousands of years ago, and yet, in this whole drama of Exodus, you might say the part of Jesus Christ is played by Moses. Because it's Moses who are going to, who's going to lead his people out of slavery. He'll lead them out of Egypt. He'll give them his law, God's law. And he'll lead them to the promised land. And if, you're a, uh, if, if you ever read through Matthew's Gospel... The whole of Matthew's gospel is based really entirely on getting that message over, that Moses is the forerunner of Jesus, 
which is why, just in this passage we just read, we just heard from, there are these, these striking similarities between Moses and, and, and Jesus. It's setting that up. So both are condemned to death as babies, aren't they? Both are saved from the king. Both are rejected uh, as their saviour. Both of them spend time in the desert before their mission starts. So when we're looking at Moses, we're looking at Jesus, when we're looking at Jesus, well, we're being reminded of our saviour and our living hope. Which means that what you're seeing in Exodus 2 is people living out their lives in that living hope. And one of our problems with Exodus 2 is that we're so used to this sort of picture, aren't we? We've all been to perhaps a Sunday school or we've all been given books at some stage or we've all seen uh, some of the films and we see Moses in the bulrushes and it's all rather sweet and fairy tale like and, uh, and sugary when reality was much more like this, what was going on. Exodus 1 verse 22, if you've got your Bibles open to uh, you can just see this, Pharaoh gives the order that newborn boys are really to be thrown to the crocodiles. And that's pretty normal stuff in those days. Um, it, it was brutal, but it wasn't unusual. An oppressed people would, would have been normal for the men to be enslaved. The women would have been sent off to the harems. The babies were killed. And unwanted children in those days would have been just left outside to take their chances. Just like nowadays, you walk here to church and you'll see furniture left outside. Nobody cares what happens to it. It could be thrown away. It could be taken away. It doesn't matter. That was the fate of the children there. It was a hard and difficult life. So how do we live? If that was a real world then, how do we live out now? Because we're in a similar world. We're in a, a, a multicultural society, one that is pretty antagonistic uh, to, to Christian believers. How do, we, how do we cope with that? What do we do day to day? Well, there's two ways that we can respond. The first thing we can do is give in. That's the simple thing to do. As Nick was just saying, we don't need to repent, we don't need to obey, we don't need to worship. We can just go along with the world around us. And actually, that's what the Hebrews were doing in Exodus 2. We know that from later on in Joshua, uh, when he has to say to the people, get rid of the gods that your parents worshipped and your grandparents worshipped. So the folk in those days, there was so much pressure on them, just blend in. Been a long time since God had spoken to them. The promises were fading. There wasn't much proof that God was doing anything. So we just give up and blend in. Well, that's one route, isn't it? But look at verse 1, word 1 of chapter 2. That simple word, now. Because now God is going to break through. Now God is going to do something. Now something will change. 
And what's going to create that change is an obscure couple whose names we get later on uh, in, in the Bible, Jochebed and Amran. That's Moses' mum and dad. And they're a pretty unlikely couple, really. They're from the, the, the Levi family. Uh, now, the Bible scholars here will be saying, oh, yes, we know about the Levites. They were the priestly family. They were bound to be, you know, the forefather of Moses and all the rest of it. But actually, no, at this point, the Levites were a bit like the Cray brothers. You know, their, their reputation was one of brutality and cruelty. Uh, they'd be cursed by Jacob, really, on, on his deathbed. In fact, Amran ends up marrying his niece. You wonder sort of whether actually uh, nobody else would marry into the family. Uh, they were so uh, unpopular, perhaps. So this is a pretty unlikely couple to start God's saving work. And the question is, why? Why does God use a couple like this? What have they got going for them? And the answer is, they have faith in Christ. We turn, if you want to, you can look it up, uh, Hebrews 11, we'll dip into that in a minute. Um, Hebrews 11 tells us that it was by faith in Christ that they hid Jesus. They saw he was special. I don't think they thought he was some sort of, a, such a lovely child, we've got to look after him, but they could see there was something special about him. And Hebrews 11 says they weren't afraid of the king's edict. And actually, it says the same thing about Moses. It's on page 1210, if you want to follow it. Um, let's just read uh, what uh, Hebrews says about Moses. Verse 24, it says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking forward to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. So what we have in Exodus 2 is people living out their life of faith, trusting in the promises of God. Well, that sounds lovely too, but I'm still left with the next question. Well, how do I do that? Well, we know where faith comes from, don't we? Faith comes from hearing the word of God, which is sort of interesting, isn't it? Because that means that Joseph, uh, Pharaoh, no, wrong one, Moses, Moses would have heard the word of God. And I guess... Moses heard the word of God from his parents, who probably heard it from his parents. <coughs> so there's something there straight away, isn't there, about parents' role and, and, and passing uh, the word of God on to our children. But then 1 Timothy 1 tells us that God does not give us a spirit, whoops, getting hit, does not give us a spirit of timidity. He gives us a spirit of power, of love, and self-discipline. When we put our faith in the Lord Jesus, then the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and gives us that power. It means that we're not trying to live this life of faith in our own efforts. We're relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. I think Ben last week talked about the Holy Spirit being our comforter 
the one who gives us strength. We can't live this life of faith without relying on the Holy Spirit. That's part of the problem with the Bank of England's advice, isn't it? It's just put up with it. There's nothing, no power there, no one to help us. Well, God doesn't say just put up with it. He says, I'm giving you my Holy Spirit. We're not left alone. It's very interesting, isn't it? We look into uh, verse 21 22 of chapter 2. Moses is in the desert. He's fled everything. He's left everything behind. And yet he's not left alone, is he? He meets Zipporah and he's provided with companionship. We cannot live the Christian life alone. We have our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have folk here. We have family, perhaps. Um, But more than all of that, we have the Holy Spirit to help us. He is the one who gives us the gifts for the good of the church. He is the one who strengthens us and empowers us. So this life of faith that Hebrews talk about is a life lived in the power of the Spirit. And as you look at this chapter, you can see what that might mean for you and me. Just briefly, we'll touch through it. So Amran and Jochebed, verses 1 to 3, they're risking the king's anger by what they do. You know, we are going to have to risk upsetting people. Whether you're at work, whether you're retired, meeting friends, whether you're at school, whether you're at college, we have to risk, we have to be brave and accept we're going to upset people. And we're probably not going to be risking our lives, as we we're just hearing about in Nigeria. It's probably simply going to be by speaking out, by being prepared to say those things that perhaps we're really uncomfortable about saying. But Jesus promises the Holy Spirit will give us the right words. I can think two or three occasions where it's been really desperately difficult in the workplace. And looking back on it and reflecting on this sermon, I thought, the Holy Spirit gave me the right words. I can see that looking back. But we need to be brave. We need to speak out. Life in the Spirit does not mean, by the way, being stupid or naive. Look at verse 4. They leave Moses' sister, that's she's Miriam, on watch. Jesus says, be gentle, but be wise as serpents. Living life in the Spirit is going to mean unexpected blessings. Look at verse 9. Moses should have been eaten by a crocodile. But instead, he's wonderfully restored, isn't he? Restored to his mother, who is even paid to look after her own baby. That would have been an outcome beyond anything Jochebed could have been imagining when she entrusted Moses to that river. God sometimes wonderfully, unexpectedly blesses. And let's look out for those moments. Let's expect God to act in those ways. Do you remember that lovely story in Acts chapter 12 when uh, Peter's been in prison and he's, uh, he's miraculously released and all the church and disciples are all busy praying behind locked doors uh, and Peter comes and knocks at the door uh, and uh, the maid goes to the door and she sees Peter outside and, and she rushes back to tell uh, everybody else about it rather than letting him in. She was so surprised she couldn't quite process uh, what had happened. 
Well, let's be not like that. Let's expect God to break through. Life in the Spirit can mean disappointment. Look at verse 11. Moses kills an Egyptian guard. There's quite a lot going on in there, but Stephen talks about this in Acts 7. And he says, Moses thought his people would recognize he was their rescuer. He thought they would get it. But they didn't. And towards the end of Hebrews 11, great passage on faith, it says, not everyone who lives life like this will see their reward on earth. There will be times when we won't see God working the way we would like him to. Life in the Spirit means different priorities. You know, Moses had almost certainly been a general in the Egyptian army. There's, there's lots of other history and tradition around Moses, not in the Bible. Uh, seems like he led uh, a, an Egyptian army on a campaign uh, in Ethiopia. He would be a senior member of the royal family. Probably he could have been the next pharaoh. But again, Stephen says he was well-educated and powerful, but he walked away from it. He sold everything for the best pearl, I guess is how you could put it. And then life in the spirit involves patience. Look at verse 25. Moses flees to the desert. And he's not there just for a week to sort himself out or, or to have a bit of a, uh, a refresher. He's there for 40 years. He, still, he thought he was starting a revolution when he was 40. It won't be until 80 that he starts work. That wouldn't have been popular in France at the moment, would it? No retirement at 64. He started work at 80. But the fruit of the Spirit includes patience. So Exodus 2 is a picture of folk living life in the Spirit. Let's go to there. And whatever that means for each of us, let's never forget that covenant. Let's never forget God keeps his promises. That was true in Exodus 2, still true today. And it doesn't matter whether we're well-educated, it doesn't matter whether we're from a, a messed-up family, it doesn't matter whether we're on fire for the Lord, it doesn't matter whether we're in the wilderness. God remembers those who trust in him. And so what a way to end that, that perhaps verse for the year we had last year. May the God of hope fill us with all joy and peace as we trust in him and may we overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit.